0: Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. All right, it's a story that captured the attention of Central Ohio. Eight year old Kelly Ann Prosser was kidnapped, raped, and killed, and for nearly 40 years, no arrest in the case. And thanks to a DNA match, now the police say the case is solved. Our Sean Lanier joins us live with a look at how this all came together finally. That's right, Brad. It's really incredible when you think about all of the evidence that uh, detectives had to collect nearly 40 years ago. They had to collect evidence from right here at the school where Kelly and uh, Prosser was last seen. They also had to go down to Madison County and collect evidence there as well. And we spoke with a lady who said she submitted a crucial piece of evidence that led to detectives finding that 8-year-old's body. He was only linked to this by the new DNA test. That's the power of these tests. And with these databases, do we know which database was used in this investigation? We don't know this one specifically, but the other high-profile cases that we mentioned uh, was a thing called GEDmatch. It's very popular. It's free, and a lot of people have put their DNA there uh, willingly and have certainly helped police in many of these cases. really have. Amy, thank you. If you've ever submitted your DNA to a genealogy database in search of relatives or that. information about your ancestry, something you and I have both done, mm-hmm. there is something you should know. In certain cases, your DNA profile may be accessed by law enforcement to help track down criminals. Local for you in Columbus, Isle Lanier, NBC4. Last month, police in California arrested James Allen Neal in the 1973 murder of 11-year-old Linda Ann O'Keefe, matching his DNA to the crime scene. Last August, police gave the case another look, sending DNA evidence to a lab to try and find a match in a genealogy database. DNA registries are the newest tool for investigators, helping police nab suspects in several high profile cases, cold cases, most notably the Golden State serial killings. We were able to obtain DNA from them that confirmed the link to Harold Warren Jarrell as our suspect. Hello and welcome to episode 119 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Podcast. I went into this week's episode planning to focus on one specific case. But as I'm one to do, I ended up going down the rabbit hole of missing people from the northern Ohio region in the early 1980s. I came across this hole ...when I was perusing the Ohio Attorney General's website. Because it was back in September of 2020... ...when the Ohio Attorney General's office created a cold case unit... ...dedicated to investigate unsolved crimes within the state of Ohio. As you know, units such as these are absolutely essential... ...to solving some of the most notorious crimes. And to have one that is statewide is obviously great for a lot of reasons... Because there are cities big and small that have cold cases that they just can't crack or don't have the manpower to do so. I mean, this whole podcast is literally built around cases where there are very few answers. In a lot of these situations, though, someone knows something. And they have the reasons for keeping quiet. And what a cold case unit can do is circle back to those cases that are unsolved and re-examine the evidence, witnesses, and re-interview possible persons of interest. In doing so, this keeps people involved with the case on edge, and probably adds a level of fear that they might get a knock on their door next. And according to Steve Irwin, who is the BCI spokesman, quote, the new unit will be based at the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation, and will reach out to local law enforcement agencies to initiate a fresh look at unsolved cases. Now, the unit will offer new forensic analysis, as well as investigative resources. Now, everyone who has ever kept a secret knows it's a lot easier to stay quiet when no one is asking any questions. But the ability to hold on to a dark secret, well, that begins to erode over time. All the while, the pressure of that knowledge can become soul-crushing. So these units are necessary in finding justice not just for the victims, their families, but also the communities. I mean, if someone asks the right question, it just might lead to someone cracking. And according to Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, quote, We can make a difference, even when years have passed since a murder or sexual assault. The passage of time can actually help in that some witnesses become more willing to cooperate and technology advances. Consider, for example, how DNA testing has unmasked time and again violent criminals who got away with living among us for too long, Now, the AG's website is a great resource because they tell you what makes a cold case and how they are trying to solve them. And from the site, They state that the FBI reports since 1995, more than 100,000 cold case homicides have accumulated in the United States. Now, homicide cases actually have the highest solve or clearance rates, according to the website, but it continually decreases. And with that being said, the guidelines that the BCI follows when determining a case is cold... They basically use these definitions. A cold case homicide involves any investigation that remains unsolved after being reported to law enforcement and in which all significant and viable leads have been exhausted. The category includes the following unsolved homicide investigations, questioned death investigations in which the cause of death is undetermined but suspected to be a homicide, suspicious missing persons cases in which the person is suspected to be the victim of a homicide. Unidentified remains investigations. Again, these are all things that need to be looked at when cases become cold. So what makes the case go cold? Well, the AG says every case is different, so it's really impossible to single out an exact cause. However, we can all assume that it's organizational-related and manpower-related. I mean, these police departments have budgets and they have to follow them. And, you know, unfortunately, evidence gets lost over time and they basically fall through the cracks, unfortunately, to to not make it sound so flippant. But, unfortunately, that is how some cases have become cold is that they just are just forgotten, So what happens is if you get a lot of social media interest, familial interest, public interest, you know, political interest, that's what will really help you get the BCI investigating a case. And you may be wondering what happens when these investigators re-examine an unsolved case. And again, these methods can vary from case to case depending on what has already been done. But, basically, it involves investigators reviewing and organizing the case file and evidence. And this includes mining different case files from sources beyond the originating agency, such as retired investigators, crime labs, medical facilities, prosecutor, coroner, coroner's offices, and private organizations' incident files. And, again, investigators evaluate the next best steps and a multidisciplinary team will examine the case file and all the physical and digital and investigative evidence to determine what kind of DNA testing can be done. Now, the BCI does provide any and all resources to aid in the originating law enforcement agency in solving the case, and they do undertake all such work with that agency's full cooperation. Now, again, this is all according to the Attorney General's website. So, when the Attorney General announced the founding of this unit, he announced the first 11 cases that they would be looking into. Now, the Journal News of Butler County put together a list of the names. And when I look at lists created by law enforcement, I have a tendency to look for two things the age of the victims, and what year the murder took place. Now, one of the names that stood out to me was Joanne Hebert, and she was 14, and she disappeared on July twenty second, 1981, where she was headed to the nearby Tag Market at 9110 Dublin Road. Both of her parents were at their jobs, and... Unfortunately, that was the last time she was seen. Searches for Joanne would come up empty, and unfortunately, months later, an unfortunate hunter actually came across the partially decomposed body at the fringe of a wooded area, and that was on September 29th, 1981. Now, according to the Marysville Journal-Tribune, the death of Joanne was ruled a homicide Dr. Malcolm McIlvor said Hebert died of a massive basal skull fracture caused by a blow on the head from a blunt weapon. Now, the Union County coroner would go on to say there were extensive facial fractures from apparent repeated blows to the face. He said the apparent killing was most likely conducted at the site where the body was found, according to the pathologist's report. Now, the Union County Sheriff's Department began investigating the apparent murder with the assistance from Delaware County Sheriff's authorities. Now, authorities believed there is a missing link, and that is the reddish-orange bicycle that the girl was last seen riding. And that bike has never been found. Now, it is possible that someone not involved in the crime could have information about that bike. And both departments at that time were urging anyone with information... To con- To come to the sheriff's office, basically. And unfortunately, nobody was able to locate Joanne that day. And luckily, there are generous people out there who will put their wallet out there for answers. And Joanne's case wasn't any different. In fact, a Dublin business firm who wished to remain anonymous announced a $5,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the rape and murder of Joanne Hebert. Now again, any information concerning this crime at the time was to be directed to Lieutenant Vance of the Dublin Police Department. Now, while researching the case of Joanne, I ran into a brick wall. There really wasn't much information to work with, and it was frustrating. And that was not when I came across a fascinating article by Mary, Gra- by Mary Grace Potamani of the Akron Beacon Journal. And it's titled, Nine Abducted in Two Years Within 150 Miles. Now, this was 1982, so I was unaware of all these cases. But I think it's worth highlighting her work and the victims she focused on. Now, according to an article I found about the writer, Mary Grace is that she actually ended up becoming a lawyer after her time with the journal. And reading how thorough her work is, I can see why she would make a great attorney. So kudos to a nice career. So anyway, back to what I was saying. All right. So with the diminished returns newspapers provide today, it's really nice to see a deep dive into a situation that may not get the page space it deserves nowadays. So I am going to take a dive into the article because it is a shining example of trying to connect the dots of cases that have become too complex to explain. And I am going to read liberally from her article. She states, they were young with luminous faces and laughing eyes. Suddenly, they were missing. Now eight, including Dawn Marie Hendershot of Maslin are dead. The ninth has never been found. In the last two years, the 9 girls have disappeared or have been abducted from hometowns along a 150-mile trail from Cleveland to Columbus. Azneth Ducat, 8, was last seen on June 3rd, 1980 at a shopping center near her home in Upper Arlington, north of Columbus. Tiffany Papish, 8, was last seen on June 13, 1980, standing in a checkout line at a grocery store near her Maple Heights home. Tammy Seals, 14, was last seen before dawn, October 17, 1980, and she was delivering newspapers in her West Side Cleveland neighborhood. And then there's Joanne's case, who was last seen on July 22, 1981. Then you have Demita Sullivan, Nine, who was last seen October 12, 1981, walking near her Copley Road home on Akron's near West Side. Then you have Tina Marie Harmon, last seen October 29, 1981, walking away from a grocery store near her home in Creston. Krista Harrison, 11, last seen July 17, 1982, being pulled into a van at a park 100 yards from her Marshallville home. Kelly Prosser, 8, last seen September 21st, 1982, walking near an elementary school in Plain City, north of Columbus. And then you have Dawn Marie Hendershot, 7, last seen September 29, 1982, leaving Garell Elementary School near her home in Massillon. All but Tiffany Papish have been found dead, shot, or strangled, or their skulls crushed, or their bodies hidden, too long to know for sure. How they died. And with those deaths have come anguished questions. Who? Why? Can it happen again to my child? Now, Mary Grace goes on to write that three men had been convicted in two of the slains, but the verdicts have been thrown into doubt by claims of, quote, perjured testimony and evidence linking one of those slains, that of Tina Marie Harmon, to the death of Krista Harrison. Now, a man has been arrested in the case, in another case, and that was Donald Maurer. And he is an unemployed meat cutter from Maslin. And he was charged actually with the death of Dawn Marie Hendershot. And there was a similarity in age, geography, cause of death, sexual assault. It was all really wild. Um, he was basically her neighbor, and it, it's just, it's terrible. So, what Mary Grace goes on to write is that what emerges, however, is a dark cloth of brutality, a cloth from which other killers of other young girls in other cities have been cut. While those killers may rape their victims, their goal is sadistic, not sexual satisfaction, according to Dr. Emmanuel Tenay. Who is recognized as one of the top forensic psychiatrists in the country? Quote We often view rape, whether a child or adult woman, as a means to an end, securing sexual gratification. For those people, sadistic activity is the goal of suffering imposed upon the parents as well as the victim. They need to hurt often because they were hurt as children. And they need to hurt again and again, Tanay said. And, again, he goes on to say that something is terribly distorted in their character. They don't have a normally developed conscience. Feelings of remorse or guilt are unknown. Their conduct is perfectly acceptable to them. Now, again, this is pretty much standard profiling at this point. Now, it's 1981 You know, behavioral science is a new thing. And Dr. Richard Dobbins, who was the director of Akron's Emerge Counseling Center, agreed. And he said at the time, quote, "...whoever is doing this is very disturbed, but also very smart. He may very well understand the sociology of small towns, where you don't have the fear syndrome working for children's survival, and you don't have police departments prepared to handle these cases." Now, such people are equally careful in choosing victims, Tane said. Quote, there is some element, age group, gender, physical feature, that makes a certain victim acceptable to them. Now, again, such people also tend to be enamored of the enormity of the crimes they commit. Quote, murder is abhorrent to begin with. That in itself might appeal, Tane said. But, it is so abhorrent to our culture to do that to a child that becomes a pinnacle of deprivation. Mary Grace would go on to write that the psychological profiles had been drawn in several of the nine disappearances, but it was only the Upper Arlington Police Department police detective Edward Tyne, who would discuss specific profiles, saying Tanay's conclusions were consistent with that of the suspect in the murder of Azeneth Ducat. Now, she was last seen by her friends on June 3rd, 1980, at a crosswalk three blocks from her school. She and her classmates had been kept late, apparently, as a bit of a punishment for some rowdy behavior that day. Now, she was reported missing by her parents at 4 p.m. The 11-block walk usually took about 20 minutes, and 40 had passed. So, these were clearly parents who were on top of their child, and they were on top of this. And, unfortunately, her fully clothed body was found 22 hours later in a small creek bed one block from her home. Now, according to Tyne, the girl's skull had been crushed with a large stone, and there was evidence of a sexual attack. Now, she had also been choked, but no suspect had been identified at that time. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. As you guys know, 2020 was terrible, and things are still pretty terrible. But today I am happy to tell you about BetterHelp.com. Because if there's anything that's holding you back or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And it's really convenient because with the current state of the world, it really needs to be. So now you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. All you have to do is schedule secure video or phone sessions. And you can also chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And if, for whatever reason, you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They even have apps for your smartphone or your computer, so you are never out of touch. So again, if you're suffering from anxiety or depression, anger, stress, relationship issues, heck, not getting good enough night's sleep, trauma, LGBT matters. They literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. And the thing I like most is that this is actually an affordable option. And Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So when I get started today? Go to betterhelp.com who. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get you matched with a counselor that you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com who. All right, we are back. And now you have the case of Joanne, which was the case they had originally intended to cover this week. Now, she was last seen at 5 p.m., and now, again, I mentioned that she was going to the grocery store, but she was making a phone call from a booth outside that store, and she, again, had her her red and orange 10-speed bicycle propped up against a wall when the store closed two hours later. So Joanne's partially decomposed body was again found on September 29, 1981, by a squirrel hunter in a wooded area, of neighboring Union County. Again, her skull had been crushed. No suspect was identified. Now, Tiffany Papish was running last-minute errands that Friday, June 13, 1980, for the family's camping trip, and according to Mary Grace, Tiffany offered to walk to the store for hamburger buns, and In the article, it was when she was in the checkout line that she stepped aside to let an elderly woman pay for her groceries. Tiffany then paid for her purchase, dropped the change in her bag, and went out the store. Unfortunately, she was never seen again. And Mary Grace quotes her father as saying, This is the greatest vanishing act in the world. Houdini could never have done anything to compare. Now, a bulletin was circulated by Maple Heights police that described Tiffany as four feet tall, weighing 58 pounds, with brown hair cut in a shag style. Now, she wore blue shorts and a red t-shirt with the words, quote, let's face it, I'm cute. Unfortunately, her body has never been found. In 1982, police said they followed up any leads that came to the department, but her father disagreed about that. And they didn't believe that everything was being done. And he said, quote, There are still states where my daughter's picture hasn't been shown. And, again, her body has still never been discovered. Then you have Tammy Seals, which was closer to Cleveland. And she was an eighth grade honor student. And she was living with her mother and her brother and sister. And she actually was delivering newspapers when she disappeared. Now, she was last seen on October 17th, 1980, and only 12 of the 27 papers that she was meant to deliver that day were actually delivered. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. Her body was found, unfortunately, four months later in an abandoned house just 10 blocks from her home. Now, the cause of death because of that time is undetermined. Quote, let the people know that a lunatic is still out there. He's still out there, cried her mother. Now Orlando Chico Morales of Cleveland was convicted of aggravated murder, felonious sexual assault, and kidnapping largely on the testimony of a former jail cellmate. Now the cellmate later said he lied to gain favor with prosecutors on robbery charges, but Morales was denied a new trial. But an appeal citing publicity, strained emotions, prosecutorial deceit, and constitutional error was before the 8th District Court of Appeals when this article was printed. Then you have Demita Sullivan. She was last seen on on October 12, 1981, walking with two boys near her Copley Road home in West Akron. Days, then months, slipped by as massive searches were conducted by off-duty police officers and volunteers. This is sad. Quote, it's getting sadder by the hour, one detective said. Now again, this is all in Mary Grace's very well-researched article from the Akron Beacon Journal. And she goes on to say that the sadness gave way to anger and frustration after police listed Demita as a runaway. Her parents insisted she was abducted. Her body was found April 21st in a shallow grave a half block from her home. No cause of death determined. Now, again, no suspect at that time had been identified. Then you had Tina Marie Harmon, who called to her friends, quote, Wait for me! The 12-year-old was paying for a fudgicle and heading out the door of a Creston grocery store, and she was never seen alive again. Five days later, on November 3rd, 1981, her fully clothed body was found at an oil well site near Navarre in Stark County. Unfortunately, an autopsy determined that she had been raped and strangled. Now, it looked like there was going to be justice in her case, as Herman Ray Rucker of West Salem and Ernest Holbrook of Lodi were indicted three months after her body was discovered. And Rucker actually was found guilty in June of uh, 1982, I believe. <clears throat> and he was found guilty by a Wayne County Common Pleas Court jury largely on the testimony of four witnesses, including a fellow farm worker. Now, Curtis Maynard was sentenced to life in prison, and he later recanted his testimony. Again, he said he lied because of threats from investigators. This is why you never trust a jailhouse snitch. So, two days later, it was disclosed that evidence had been found linking Tina's death with the kidnap-slaying of Krista Lee Harrison of Marshallville. Now, this is all very interesting because of what eventually ends up happening. Now, the matching orange-brown carpet fibers were only one twist in the trial. A key prosecution witness, Tammy Decker, recanted her testimony. Another, Susan Siegler, defended Holbrook from the witness stand. But the judges found Holbrook guilty as an accomplice to murder, rape, and kidnapping. And on September 15th, Rucker was granted a new trial based on the strong probability he would have been acquitted without Maynard's perjured testimony and with the fiber evidence. Now, at that time, prosecutors did ask the 9th District Court of Appeals to uphold Brucker's convictions. Now, Holbrook also petitioned for a new trial, arguing that the judge's unannounced visit to a crime scene violated his right to be present at all phases of his trial. Three months later, two white men, Ernest Holbrook Jr., age 19, and Herman Ray Rucker, age 26, were charged in Tina Harmon's rape and murder. Again, there was no physical evidence linking either man to the crime, and both men actually passed lie detector tests. Holbrook was at his sister's wedding the weekend of the abduction, but police were convinced that Holbrook and Rucker were the perpetrator's based on the testimony of two witnesses. Again, we cannot emphasize this enough. Witnesses are great if they're telling the truth, but when they're not, they're deterrent, and they screw up investigations. Holbrook's cousin, Curtis Maynard, and his acquaintance, Susan Siegler, claimed that after a night of drinking at the Siegler's house, Rucker had confessed to them that he and Holbrook had killed a little girl who had resisted their sexual advances. Now, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, Rucker was convicted and sentenced to life in prison on June 9, 1982. Two months later, Holbrook was convicted and given a life sentence as well. Holbrook wept as he was led away from his wife and one-month-old son. Now, Megan Barrett Cusino wrote on the National Registry of Exonerations' website, That it was soon after Holbrook and Rucker were convicted, the reliability of one of the two witnesses against them, Susan Sigler, was called into question when she was convicted of filing a false rape claim. Sigler was also discovered to have lied on her marriage license, claiming she had one prior husband who was deceased when she actually had four living ex-husbands. Great investigation, guys. The other witness against Holbrook and Rucker, Curtis Maynard, well, he was mentally impaired, and he recanted his testimony, claiming that he had been pressured by Stark County detectives who had used Maynard's probation for past felony convictions as leverage. Now, following Maynard's recantation, Rucker was granted a new trial, and he was acquitted by a jury on June 16, 1983, Holbrook sought a new trial, but his requests were repeatedly denied, and he unfortunately remained in prison. But luckily for Holbrook, it was in April of 1984 when Robert A. Buell, a former employee of the City of Akron Planning Department, was convicted of the abduction and killing of 11-year-old Krista Lee Harrison. This crime was very similar to the killing of Tina Harmon that had occurred in a neighboring town. And again, 6th grader Krista Lee was dragged into a dark-colored van, as I mentioned before, as she was playing on July 17th in a park across the street from her home. Her body was found six days later in an abandoned garage in rural Holmes County. She had been strangled. An autopsy found evidence. Of a sexual attack. The FBI and police in Wayne, Holmes, Ashland, and Stark counties pursued almost 600 leads in the case, including reports of a man who had photographed Krista at softball games. Sketches of this abductor were mailed to 400 police departments across Ohio, with a description of the van that sped away from the park that day. Now, One of the things that was found was identical rust-colored carpet fibers of an uncommon type. And those were found on the bodies of both girls. So the manufacturer of the carpet actually confirmed that in the state of Ohio, they had only sold enough of that particular carpet for a few homes. And guess what? An identical carpet was found in Robert Buell's van. Luckily, this set the stage for Holbrook's conviction to be set aside and the charges against him were demiss- dismissed on May fourth, 1984. He was released after spending over two years in prison. Curtis Maynard was convicted of perjury for his false testimony in Rucker's trial and was lucky enough to spend 13 months in prison. So, then you have Dawn Marie Hendershot. Now, she was the seven-year-old masculine girl who really kicked off the original story that Mary Grace was covering. And she was last seen on September 29th walking home from her elementary school in Massillon. Now, Donald Lee Maurer was convicted of sexually abusing and murdering the 7-year-old girl, and he was actually sentenced to die in the electric chair. So that's one of the joys of looking into the, these cases when you do actually seek closure like when they found kelly ann prosser's raincoat alongside the the road the right sleeve was smeared with blood and they were pretty confident something tragic had happened and it was only about a half mile away that they discovered it and it was in a cornfield and unfortunately it was the 8 year olds dead body now police at the time say she was strangled and sexually molested. Now, police have questioned, or had questioned at the time, a 63-year-old Columbus man who was charged with gross sexual imposition in an attack on another girl the night before Kelly disappeared. Quote, The big thing on my mind is that I hope Kelly didn't suffer. Unquote. Her father, Marty Hoffman, told a Columbus reporter. Quote, I can't imagine the terror she went through, eight years old, grabbed off the street by some guy. I wanted to talk about this so maybe one family can be spared this pain. This community has got to know how much jeopardy their kids are in. Now, it took nearly 40 years, but the killer of 8-year-old Kelly Prosser was actually solved. On June 26, 2020, the family finally got an answer about who killed their child. Columbus police investigators who never gave up on the cold case, matched a dead man's DNA to the rape and murder of Kelly. Quote, our family has spent many long years waiting for Kelly Ann's murder to be solved. Unquote. According to a statement released by the Kelly's family after police announced the news. It was on a Friday afternoon in 2020 when the press conference was held where they released the name of now deceased, Harold Warren Jarrell as the man behind the killing. Now, he had passed away at the age of 67 in 1996 in Las Vegas. So, unfortunately, he was not able to be held accountable. Now, this all happened because detectives recently began working with a genealogy company called Advanced DNA to use DNA from the crime scene and to help identify the suspect. They were able to actually establish a family tree, and they were followed up on those leads to possible fa- family members. The initial match was with a third cousin. Through the process, they determined that Jarrell was Kelly's killer. Now, Tammy Seal's killer is questionable because he repeatedly denied any involvement in the case. As stated before, Tammy was delivering newspapers when she disappeared in October of 1980. Her body was found in February the following year. Now, in 2008, the Innocence Project got involved and they wanted to test the DNA and the original judge, Richard McGonigal, Monagal, Uh, actually granted the request and unfortunately for Morales the testing didn't find DNA anywhere and so he was basically left stuck in jail and in the case of Demita Sullivan Richard E. Phillips 22 was found guilty of her murder in July 1987 and he was sentenced to life in prison Now, he confessed to police that he actually had struck Demita in the stomach with a rake while he was raking leaves in the backyard of his Noah Avenue home. Phillips said Demita persisted in annoying him over an incident that occurred earlier at her home. And then he said he dragged the body behind the neighbor's garage and covered her with leaves and debris. Now, that's bad enough, but Phillips then admitted to killing 16-year-old Christina Parrish of akron on september 6 1984 her body was discovered april 13 1987 in a grave about 80 feet from where Demita's body was found five years earlier again this information comes from the akron beacon journal unfortunately there were some victims whose killers got away now the scariest thing about this era was it was the heart of stranger danger But yet these girls would just continually disappear. And clearly not every case is connected, but as you can see, some are. What you can also see is there's a lot of sick and deranged people who live in the state of Ohio, which is awesome. So glad I live here. But I do have to give kudos where they are due. And that begins with the attorney general's office and Dave Yost for making cold cases such a priority. Not only for the family, but for the communities. Now, again, Mary Grace Poitamani for her excellent work in 1982 for the Akron Beacon Journal. A lot of the information shared in this episode comes from her extensive article from October 3rd, 1982. Now, if you have any information about these unsolved cases, please reach out to your local police department or Crime Stoppers. This episode is a really good example of how focused the country was on protecting our children. But in the process, some still slipped through the cracks. So, again, thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's episode. And thank you to BetterHelp.com for sponsoring this week's show. As you guys know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And as always, if you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes. Or, if you want to contribute via Venmo, you can use my username at Bill-Huffman-3. I mean it when I say it. Every contribution, big or small, helps keep these slow burn podcasts running. So, you can help support the show also by leaving a five-star review wherever it is that you listen to your favorite podcasts. Again, those five stars help keep the important cases that I cover, such as pretty much every case I talked about today in the spotlight. And if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered as well as the new shows that I have coming down on the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at billhuffman 3 Thank you guys again so much for listening to this week's episode of Who Killed? Until next time, be healthy and stay safe. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. Come play with us.